0: Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
1: Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist and a master's in mechanical engineering, do a whole bunch of stuff, and leaving South Padre, Texas tomorrow. So,
0: Oh, gosh, I forgot you're still...
1: Yeah, I'm still down here.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, you just your recordings—you you've got to just down to a science, you know, because no matter where you are, it's—it's. It's, I can't tell if you're home or not, you know. So that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, I just bring the same setup with, and got out kiteboarding yesterday, which was super fun.
0: Nice. So you got some good whatever conditions.
1: Yeah, it was finally windy. It hasn't been too windy, which is odd for this time of year. And uh, yesterday was pretty windy. Had plenty of power and. Road for, it's probably like three, three and a half hours in a row, which is, uh, yeah, mm. it was very fun. Sweet.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's fun to, sometimes we forget that you can get some nice, like, uh, fat and calorie burning and stuff like that, actually having a blast just doing something that sort of doesn't seem like purposeful exercise, you know, but it's still, oh, yeah. Probably I doing cool, cool things for sister muscles and everything else, you know.
1: Yeah. So. I think you've got to recreation, you know, still burns calories and it's fun and doesn't really seem like work to most people either.
0: Yeah. I can tell you, um, gosh, for the last three weeks, my lifting has been so spotty. It's really been kind of pissing me off, frankly. But I've, um, I actually dropped my gym membership for a month and I'm jogging and lifting in my basement, you know, and I can't can't tell you how bad my aerobic base is. I mean, I think I was talking about this before, but it's literally like, I'll walk for a while, jog for a while, you know, and I'm not that heavy. I can't really justify this much anymore. I weigh 210 soaking wet, you know, so I can't say, oh, I'm 230 and that's very heavy for me. And <laughs> But, you know, uh, I just, the fun thing, just like with lifting, I think though, is you're, no matter how minimal you are, um, baseline you are, you, it's still a building process, you know, so I figure I'm going to try to, if if I can only make it to the gym twice a week, I'm just going to try to build an aerobic base for a month. That might sound like blasphemy for some people, but you know, I'm a middle-aged dude and I've got to keep up my aerobic base and I lost it.
1: <laughs> so, um, as you, you know, talked about before I've noticed it myself and with clients too, is as soon as that starts and it gets pretty bad your ability to handle stress and just more work in general tends to suffer too
0: yes it does and i've talked to phil about this before and everyone phil's going to join us after the break he's on the road by the way we're going to try to give him a call to his cell phone in the car um but yeah my recovery ability and um i don't know it just feels like when i'm more aerobically fit it's it's sort of a cleaner you know, more, I don't know, more functional feel. I have all the time in the background, you know, as opposed to, I mean, sometimes it's fun when you, I don't know, bulk up or off season, you're actually doing minimal activity and you're hammering the calories and that kind of stuff, you know, and you don't really care about your, at least I don't at times, my VO2 max, you know, my aerobic ability, but um, yeah, I got to do something about it. Cause you can only let it slide so far, I think, before you just start feeling sluggish and crappy, you
1: know, so. Yeah, I, I figured that once, like years ago, I bred too many. Arms. I said, oh, all the you know cardio is gonna kill your gains, and I you know, was trying to get bigger and stronger. And I said, okay, I'm I'm not doing any cardio then. So I didn't do any for oh man, probably four months or something like that. I remember at the time I was working for a biomed company. I remember walking in one day and walked up three flights of stairs with just my bag and my cooler, and I was panting, out of breath like crazy.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's ugly.
1: That much stronger over the past four months compared to before. Like crap, this is horrible. So I realize I'm never going to let myself hopefully get that bad again. It's always ups and downs, but um, yeah, that was pretty horrible. Right on.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's get to, um, I just have a little bit of news. We have iron radio news and, um, and some science news, um, And then when we get Phil on the line, hopefully we can. Everybody's traveling, it sounds like. But uh, I want to cover the topic of supplements or even some pharmaceuticals to um, ramp up and relax. And I'm going to focus a little bit more on the relax part after the break, partly because of the news. So here's that's a little segue. Strength and Muscle Sport News. The first thing I have is actually a video from the American Chemical Society, and if you're not familiar listeners, ACS is, you know, they're kind of it um, when it comes to accrediting chemistry programs and that sort of thing, student activities, all this sort of stuff, but they have a fun video that I will post on our Facebook page. It's called The Science of Caffeine, the World's Most Popular Drug. And again, this is a video, so I'm not going to have a lot to read to you, but um, it says, just in the synopsis, it's not just in coffee anymore. From drinks to jerky to gum, caffeine is everywhere. In our latest video, we take a look at the science behind the world's most popular drug, including why that little molecule keeps you awake, and we reveal how much caffeine is too much. Uh, this actually came to me through labmanager.com. Uh, it's just sort of a you know, news-fetching, news-service sort of thing. Uh, handy, you know, along with some of the other ones, but here's the nutshell They're, they have about a three minute video, two or three minutes, and it talks of, it shows the molecules and it talks about what happens when you consume caffeine. So it's just sort of the basics if you're if you're not familiar, but essentially when you consume caffeine, your body is going to use the caffeine itself, but it's also going to metabolize and there's there's three main molecules that caffeine metabolizes into. There's theobromine, which is also found in chocolate right? Uh, paraxanthine and theophylline and theophylline is also found in tea. Uh, but the interesting thing is all of these things work sort of in concert. Each one of these metabolites has, has slightly different, uh, I guess you could argue all of them are fight or flight kinds of uh, actions, but like whether it's oxygen transport to the brain or enhancement of uh, fat mobilization, um, Increased in heart rate, you know, concentration, dopamine release in your brain. So they sort of work in in concert. The way they describe it in the video is something along the lines, I think they said um, these molecules crash the adenosine party. And if you're not familiar, adenosine... Um, it's going to tend to do things like downregulate dopamine release, sort of a feel-good neurotransmitter in your brain. It's going to slow down a lot of functions. So caffeine competes with adenosine for receptors in your nervous system, and sort of removes that usual break on your alertness and you know your ability to mobilize fat and all this sort of thing, a muscle um, contractile force and activity, that kind of stuff. So I kind of like the way they explain that. It's crashing the adenosine party. Um, But it's sort of interesting. Now, I can tell you when it comes to how much is too much, uh, a lot of people know that I've looked at energy drinks and coffee quite a bit in the lab. And um, three to five milligrams per kg of your body weight, right? So if you know your body weight in pounds, and most people do, just divide it by 2.2. A lot of you know that. um, And you'll get your weight in kilos. So I'm that would put me at what like um i'm not 100 kilos anymore probably like 95 kilos or something and then i would multiply that number by three to five and that is sort of an optimal ergogenic dose or performance boosting dose i've done a lot of work with speed work and power i think that gets overlooked frankly a lot of people use caffeine just for the fatigue fighting effects and and it works for that too or mental concentration probably works for that too but um Yeah, three to five migs per kg. uh, If you want to dose that for a performance boosting effect, when we give uh, more than that, uh, if people they tend to get more and more alertness, and they'll get a lot of the uh, psychometric psychological effects. But the bar's not moving any faster. They they think it's moving faster, but it's not. So. uh, you know, there's almost like any kind of drug, especially with stimulant type things. I think there's a, a inverted U curve. You know, where you co- you go up the slope to a point, and then you kind of get jittery, or you know, a lot of the effects. It's just not panning out, maybe the way you feel like it is. So,
1: some of the people I've worked with have used high amounts of caffeine for long periods of time. You know, every time before they lift, and you know, their sleep and everything else needs work. They still feel like they're enhancing their performance, but then I have them, you know, measure even just simple, you know, volume or density, or use a push tracker if you want to measure speed. And a lot of times, their performance is not necessarily always better. Exactly. But I think because you're you're kind of playing around, as you said, with the same areas in the brain, you kind of trick yourself into feeling that you're doing that much better, but you're kind of slowly losing performance over time and then you kind of need more caffeine to get the same sensation, and it, it can be kind of easy to kind of downward spiral too.
0: Yeah. Even if you can't measure bar velocity because you don't have a gadget or obviously a laboratory, I actually played around with that with the, uh, the BioTest Spike product. Uh, gosh, it was probably a year and a half, two years ago now, because I wanted to try to tease apart as neutrally as possible how much of this is sort of uh, alertness and even euphoria. You know, from mm-hmm. the dopamine and the epi and norepi and all that, you know, fight or flight response. And then I was sort of, I was almost like studying myself, you know, like what's my performance like? Like you were saying, like density, like am I getting in more sets and reps in less time or or whatever it might be? And I actually wrote an article about that on the on the T Nation website. Um, gosh, like I said, it's probably two years old now. But yeah, it's interesting to be aware that there could be a little bit of a disconnect, at least at the really high doses uh, with how you feel and what you're actually doing in the gym. You know, Um, I had a a student in class this week. He was working with a client and he, uh, I don't remember the name of the product now, damn it, but uh, he said it had 875 milligrams of caffeine per scoop. Holy crap. And I thought, What? I mean, that seems insane. To me, I mean, even for a, a big dude, I don't care if you weigh 270, 290 pounds, that's that's pretty ridiculous. I would think that's on the, the far side of the benefit curve, like on the oh, downside. Because even if you can tolerate that, and some people probably could not, uh, no. I still think you're going to end up, um, I don't know, down-regulating something. And you know what I mean? There's no way... Uh, I don't know. I I think that's foolish. I think that's one of those sort of macho products probably, you know, like, oh, you know, blow your head off and (laughs) yeah, whatever. And, you know, and we'll talk about that after the break too, because I think they put a lot of stuff in pre-workout products uh, specifically to cause tingling or euphoria or other things to get people hooked on them. And, you know, I think it's very funny because my sister, who's the surgeon, she used to rip on my brother and I, she's like, you guys... You know, you're taking caffeine, and we were even experimenting with, like, ephedrine when you could buy it, like, in the gas stations and stuff, and, um, you know, you got to be careful with that stuff, but the point being is, she's like, oh, you you guys feel like you have to take stimulants just to work out, that's so sad, shame on you, and, and, you know, it's funny now, because 20 years later, literally, almost everyone does that on some level, you know, or at least it's a hugely popular genre,
1: so... I think as 400 milligrams is a pretty big dose. And you know, like you said, there is some research for depending on your body weight to support that, but that's, that's still not something I would have most clients do every day. That's no. a, to me, that's a definitely on the higher end for most.
0: Well, there was the, I don't remember who uh, authored it. You might know Mike, but there was a paper about a year or two ago that I, I read briefly through Joey Antonio, right at the ISSN, but I got it through that kind of channel, but that, Heavy loads, not like the 50% loads and speed work that I've been looking at because I just get such a robust effect in that range. I keep looking mm-hmm. at it, you know, but, uh, higher doses, if you're going to put more weight on the bar, like if you're going to try to 85, 90% squat, it actually takes more caffeine. Um,
1: yeah. If I remember right, also the literature there is like you said, looking at the five, even six megs per kg, which it's a pretty high dose. And, you know, again, that was a few per inch. But if you're talking about a one rep max, if you're pulling 400 and that amount of caffeine even lets you do 410 or 415, that's a, in the real world, that's a pretty massive difference. Yep. Yep.
0: And there's some potential downsides to sleeplessness and that sort of thing. I'm actually working on a case study right now where I I strongly suspect, and I mean, it's a case study. It's not cause and effect, but I strongly suspect that a very high dose of caffeine led to a um, a tendon rupture in an individual. So, uh, not because caffeine is toxic and it causes it but because it, it allowed more explosiveness, uh, on a more or less detrained person, you know, and it kind of, it might've contributed, you know, cause I, whenever I hear about a tendon popping, I always think, what's the actual reason for that? You know, because a physician will say, well, it just let go. It's just time. But as a scientist, that's not okay with me, right? I want, yeah. I want, a factor or a collection of factors that might have led to, like why didn't it pop last week or next week you know like what's actually happening and there's some interesting things to look at there but
1: and endurance population there's some older studies now maybe like 3 4 years old and there's been a couple newerish ones um looking at high dose caffeine compared to aspirin um trying to tease out what is the analgesic or sort of pain-killing effect of high dose caffeine and it seems to be somewhat significant. Yeah. If you think about an endurance population, we you know caffeine works quite well for endurance performance on various mechanisms. And you know, the couple of the studies suggested that one of the main mechanisms is suppression of pain to some degree. And if you think about endurance athletes, a lot of what you're doing is just a lot of long term pain management. Right. If you're out there for two, three, four friend of mine is doing an 11-hour ultra-endurance run this weekend. Good Lord. You know, that can make a big difference over time and performance. Right. I mean, let's face
0: it. Um, analgesic effect itself, or certainly in combination, because I know a lot of lifters are right. taking aspirin or ibuprofen. I mean, think about products. Was it Anacin or Excedrin? I think Excedrin for sure. They're purposely putting caffeine in there, not to make you wired, yeah. but to, yes, yeah, speed the pain relief, you know. Yeah, for headaches too. Yep. Uh, what else do I have here? Uh, I just want to do a quick rundown. I've mentioned the IFT wellness newsletter before. This is the Institute of Food Technologists. And these guys fascinate me. They're sort of the food chemists, really. I mean, somebody's making our food these days. It's not all just grown. It's made. And I think a lot of people know that. Um, but they have a wellness-specific newsletter. and I think it's fascinating. Um, and I'm just going to Point you to this uh, with some of the blurbs on the screen. I'm not going to read each one of these because I want to um, call Phil here in a bit. But the first one says uh, Americans seek healthier options when eating out. And I think this is actually encouraging. As Americans shift their dietary focus away from counting calories and towards a more holistic wellness, consumers are looking for restaurants to provide clear indicators of healthy items. No, I like this, right? I mean, that's I think because we tend to look at our macros in our sports, you know, protein, carbs, and fats. I also want to see like is this rich in an antioxidant or fiber or whatever, but it says new research from Mintel reveals that half or 48% roughly of consumers agree that finding healthy items at restaurants is too difficult. With 25% of Americans looking for nutritional claims on menus, Uh, at least more than they did before 2015. So I like that idea. Um, I think that's in contrast to some news we shared last week, which was about how many minutes of exercise do you have to do to burn off this food? It's calorie counting. And this is suggesting that's not really what most Americans are looking for. They want some almost health claims on a a restaurant menu. And and that's cool, I think. I mean, as long as it's regulated in some way, they don't just go crazy with false claims. But
1: That's the catch I always wonder about to to be pessimistic. But I think the overall idea is awesome. And then you wonder about a restaurant who, you know, puts a couple dried cranberries on something and says, oh, look at the superfoods included. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Right. Hence, right. Some kind of regulation with that, just like you have to do with labels, you know. Yep. Um, Yeah. And that could be tough. You get a lot of Ma and Pa restaurants, especially. But Uh, another one says this is called Expert Insight. Why? Uh, genetically modified organism debate still matters. So the GMO foods in recent weeks, many major food manufacturers, including General Mills, uh, ConAgra Foods, have announced that they will be labeling their products to state that they contain gene ingredients that is GMOs. Mm. It says while all of these companies have stated unequivocally that the scientific consensus is that GMO foods are safe, They have been forced to start labeling their products with new labeling uh, regulations from the state of Vermont. So still controversial, I guess, with that kind of stuff. It is worth pointing out, though, that the scientists that I speak to, uh, there's near, there's probably over 90% consensus that GMO foods are not a problem. And I don't think that's the, the same level of confidence you get out of consumers. You know, they're more concerned about them.
1: So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that consumer pressure changes things because I'm a big fan of you should label everything that's in there, you know, supplements, everything should meet label claim, all that kind of stuff, and then let people decide what they want to do. The catch with all that is I think you then need to have that education about that yeah. also and not just hyperbole running everywhere that people believe.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Adding milk protein concentrate to high-protein nutrition bars may enhance the texture. A study published in the Journal of Food Science shows that adding ground-extruded milk protein concentrate uh, basically enhances the texture and other sensory attributes of high-protein nutrition bars. I'm, I'm bringing that up for one main reason. When you go to... Uh, you know, big chain stores, you go to Target or Walmart or something like that. I'll often go there and I'll get protein bars specifically to analyze the ingredients list with students. You know, we talk about the protein quality and, um, the amount of soy in them is dropping, but it's still there because it's cheap, you know, and obviously work from Stu Phillips and, oh gosh, Nick Bird and a lot of the guys out of those, uh, Toronto labs or Chicago now, you know, they are not very, um, excited i think about the value of soy when it comes to like post-workout muscle protein synthesis and that sort of thing um having said that i know uh Stu once told me that one night a week they go meatless um and they'll have soy products or vegetable type stuff and you know depends on your goals but yeah i like the idea that it's also making again the milk proteins making the protein bars taste better and have better mouthfeel because that's what's going to drive manufacturers to start putting better proteins, right? I'd much rather see milk proteins in my protein bars than more soy uh, because you still run into those soy nuggets and that kind of crap all the time. And I don't have anything hugely against soy some people do um but it's just not very exciting for muscle protein synthesis in my opinion so it's good that the milk they're actually seeing that it makes this stuff basically taste better because then there'll be that consumer pressure to hey put milk pr- proteins in my protein bars and not just some you know handful of peanuts or soy you know
1: yeah and <clears throat> in south padre texas the food selection is a little bit less than normal in a bigger city and so I've been buying stuff out of Walmart, which I don't normally do. And I ran out of protein bars. I thought, I'll have, you know, buy a couple and take to the beach, that kind of thing. And I bought a variety. One of them's that I've bought for quite a while. And you mentioned the, the soy and everything else. And I, I didn't think to look at the ingredient panel per se. I bought them, got home, and I looked at it, and I was like, oh, wow. They dramatically changed these. The first ingredient was soy. Great. The second ingredient was corn syrup. Oh, oh man. <laughs> yeah. How is this a health bar, right? I'm like, this is a healthy protein bar? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh, just a few more. Again, these are just the blurbs from the IFT Wellness Newsletter if people want to go look. But um, here's one. World's obese population hits 641 million. In a study published in The Lancet, more than 700 researchers worldwide, including those from the World Health Organization, analyzed data on weight and height from nearly 20 million adults across 186 countries. This doesn't even seem possible. Now, you got to be careful because of the use of things like body mass index, right, for for this. But we've talked about this before. And most people, if you're very heavy for your height, unless you're a lifter, it's it's not completely bogus, but it, you know, for a a marker of obesity, but um, it has been brought into question. Uh, But yeah, they said, geez, over 640 million people now um, classify as obese. And you know, there's, there's a similar one from the World Health Organization, diabetes cases reach 422 million worldwide. So, um, again, published in the Lancet, but it says the number of adults with diabetes has quadrupled worldwide in under four decades. Wow. Um, a lot of people know some of you, if you don't know pre-diabetes now, so people that have high blood sugars, but not high enough to be classified as diabetic, um, one in four Americans now, they're that carbohydrate intolerant. So, uh. I, and of course you might've heard the term diabesity and it's because there's, there's a connection there, you know, that much body fat, uh, from all those obese people interferes with your metabolism. It's not just cosmetic, you know, so scary stuff. It is. Uh, and then finally consumers prefer protein blends in ready to drink beverages. DuPont Nutrition and Health has published their findings from a multi-phase proprietary look, basically, which shows that consumers rank taste as their most important criteria when they're looking for uh, high-protein beverages. And I can tell you, uh, stuff like muscle milk tastes awfully good. You know, the MCTs in there and stuff make it make it creamy. And, um, you know, I have some various thoughts about muscle milk bars versus drinks, but It's true for me. It's not just the taste, it's the convenience. Uh, Believe it or not, and maybe I'm at fault with this, and we're going to have an upcoming episode about lifestyle, but uh, I actually find that even if I take protein powder to work, I'm not kidding, in a container, I I don't always have the time to run down the hall to the bathroom and fill it up with water. Uh, What if I have a ready to drink? I, I tend to consume those more. So... Now, somebody people might say, "My God, Lowry, how busy are you at work?" But yeah, make no mistake, <laughs> I do not have time. You know, you show up at work. There's like for me, for example, there's students sitting on the floor in front of my office, and here we go. And I don't. Mm-hmm. I am paralyzed from that moment until eight hours later, with constant overlap. One day this week, I am triple booked. I have three people who expect me in a meeting at the same time, oh. and so somebody's going to be pissed. But the Two point being, be <laughs> the, the the point being is I, if I have ready to drink, I can, I can slam it as I walk around and I don't even have to go fill it up with water. So those of you who are, who think I'm, you know, I don't know, a jerk or intolerant or something because I, I can't go fill up a thing with water, come watch me for one day. Um, it, it's It's actually easier for me to use the ready to drinks. I don't know. Maybe people agree, disagree, whatever, but.
1: Um, yeah. I I found that out when I mean both of us did some consulting for a certain supplement company, and as part of the deal, they sent us a whole box of ready to drink, um, like cookies and cream. I think is the flavor I got. Yep. And at first, I was kind of like, ah, I don't know, ready to drink. Ah. And I was like, wow, these actually taste pretty good. There's 40 grams of protein, and you could keep them at room temp. And I would usually just keep a few in the fridge, and especially when I was this is going on when I was finishing my PhD. It's amazing how often I did actually use those when I was just you know passing through home or just would throw a couple in the, the cooler just as extras just in case I ate all the food that I normally had yep and it it's expensive but it was from a convenience standpoint it was extremely convenient and I actually used them more than I thought I would
0: you know I, I'm always pushing portable snacks that you basically pack yourself for for you know young people or anybody trying to gain mm-hmm. weight uh, but I'm I'm my push that a little bit more too. You're right. The expense is the problem, you know, but if you can afford it, I really think they help increase intake because they are, like you said, that you don't have to refrigerate some of that stuff um, because of the packaging. I've always found that a little sketchy and they taste better cold anyway, but still, yeah, just having something you can pop open and slam it, man, very handy. I think it could increase, you know, calorie and protein intake. So, yeah. Um, Last up, before we go to break, I just want to remind everybody, sort of in Iron Radio News, that we have the Quick Fire Contest. I think we're going to run that until May 14th. So hop on our Facebook listeners page. There's already dozens of comments and inputs on this. But what I'd like people to do is get on our Facebook listeners page. Uh, there's a thread just for this. It's the Quick Fire Contest. So, Quick Fire meaning this or that questions that. Uh, you can ask the hosts, right? So we have a um, variety of hosts now and some people more available than others on different weeks. But uh, so this or that, and there's some great ones on there too. Like people are talking about sled or prowler, you know, drag or push kind of things or um, music, this or that, food, this or that kinds of things. Some of them are funny, uh, but I really like if you do this, Give us at least three, three to five, this or that quick fire questions. And I think what we might do is I got this idea from an unrelated podcast, but, uh, maybe if all of the hosts agree, uh, on the, this or that question, those are the people that go into the, like a finalist category, you know, to maybe get some prizes, Uh, maybe we'll just do it randomly as well. But, um, so check out the quick fire contest entry. And then in May, we'll give out some cool swag. I usually, you know, like I said, I have mouse pads and books and mugs, some cool stuff here. So, Okay, we're going to go to break quickly, and then we're going to try to catch up with Phil. We'll see if we can reach him. But regardless, Dr. Nelson and I um, will, minimally us, be talking about supplements and pharmaceuticals to ramp up and relax.
1: Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry here for Iron Radio. And we are talking about supplements and even possibly pharmaceuticals to help ramp you up and relax you. Yeah. Uh,
0: I want to start with the pre-workout thing because of some of the things I've been hearing uh, lately from students, consumers, and that sort of thing. But um, on the pre-workout side of thing. I think it's important a lot of people realize that caffeine is usually the key ingredient. Uh, we just talked about how caffeine works in the news a little bit uh, through that ACS uh, video link. But um, I also think there's a lot of stuff that they sneak into pre-workouts that I think are, are kind of bogus, uh, really. I mean, or at least they're put in there to manipulate the consumer. And that's what always kind of hacks me off. Um, for example... Uh, they'll put the requisite dose of caffeine, sometimes more than they need to. uh, And that will cause a certain amount of alertness and even uh, euphoria or like Mike was saying analgesia. But uh, there's also stuff in there like they'll put a good whopping dose of niacin in there sometimes to give give the consumer niacin flush. And I think that's especially ironic because a lot of pre-workout supplements are also fat burners. Uh, mm-hmm. Either the same product or something that's nearly identical and, and labeled differently. And niacin high doses—if you go over three hundred and fifty, five hundred milligrams—that kind of thing—it'll cause niacin flush. But the irony is, uh, you can actually go find multiple studies that it interferes with fat mobilization, like fat breakdown. Uh, so, how bizarre that they add that to for a cheap rush, uh, you know, niacin flush. And it can actually interfere with fat breakdown and mobilization, which is one of the reasons that you're trying, you know, you, you could be using that, you know. So um, niacin in sort of multivitamin doses, like 16 milligrams a day, that's not going to do it. But you, still, you take three, four, 500 milligrams of that stuff to get a niacin flush. Yeah, how ironic is that? I once spoke to a track coach and he's like, yeah, I give all the girls uh, a good dose of uh niacin so we can um get them to you know burn fat and all this and i'm like honestly you know i i usually try to work with coaches and just sort of educate them but i'm like i that's the opposite of what (laughs) i would do that's the opposite don't do that you know um it's a cheap rush and especially when you stack it on top of the caffeine and then of course they'll throw in uh beta alanine as well you know to try to get that parathesis that tingling and um although beta alanine, I think for the most part, the literature supports that it, it quote unquote works. Um, Acutely, it's probably not going to do a ton, you know, over time, over the course of a month, uh, perhaps, you know, but it's more of a chronic effect. You almost think of it like creatine, you know, and tissue saturation and that kind of thing. But uh, they throw that in there for even additional uh, tingling, you know. Uh, Fortress used to laugh about how the the muscle tech guys would they would even make things effervescent and stuff like that and th- it, these are just gimmicks you know a lot of times so uh, that's what i would warn about the products to ramp up uh, I, a lot of listeners know but i'm actually a fan of coffee uh dr nelson and i have seen m- multiple times at conferences how yeah. coffee has a strong anti-diabetic effect so whereas you might if you're cranking, you know, anhydrous caffeine all the time with some other uh, herbal stimulants, and there are several that, you know, get thrown into these things like guarana and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I'm afraid you would hurt your body's ability to dispose of carbohydrates in your muscles uh, when you're cr- chronically, you know, over jacked on stimulants like that. Whereas coffee, acutely it might have some of the same effects, but chronically over many weeks it has a very strong ability to enhance, or not very strong, at least some effect to enhance your carbohydrate handling. So I really moved toward more really strong uh, coffee, you know, as a pre-workout. It's part of, the, part of the ritual, I guess, you know.
1: Yeah, and as you well know, the, the catch with coffee is that if you even go to, there's a study, oh man, quite a while ago looking at just Starbucks coffee. They went to different Starbucks coffees and had them analyzed for caffeine content. And it varied, I believe, by like over several hundred milligrams difference for the same type of coffee. And you would think that that's a pretty well semi-controlled brewing technique, that kind of thing. So if you are using coffee, just be aware that the amount of caffeine you're getting can be quite varied from one to the next. You know, even using the same. Uh, type of coffee. We know that different types of coffee, the different beans themselves make a difference in caffeine, roasting levels, how it's brewed and prepared. And you add all those things up and you can have pretty wide differences.
0: Absolutely. if I
1: work with someone who is using it purely for the ergogenic effect, if they're doing, you know, lifting meat or CrossFit or something like that, I'll actually either have them use just the pure anhydrous-type caffeine just because you can really control it. Yeah, um, You can buy the cheap powdered anhydrous for almost nothing. And another trick with that I found, too, is that measuring it a lot of times can be really hard because the doses are so small, unless you get one of those little tiny drug dealer-type scales or something. <clears throat> but you can buy uh, the caps of 200 milligrams of anhydrous caffeine pretty inexpensively and then if you need to change the dose on it you just do kind of like a serial dilution so you take your cap of 200 milligrams say put it in one cup of water you know stir it around good so it's mixed up and then a half a cup of water is 100 milligrams or if you want to go to a quarter that's 50 milligrams so it gives you a pretty easy way of changing Uh, the dose. And I know, like you said, Lonnie, you've used Starbucks uh, via packets of coffee because the caffeine seems to be a little bit more controlled in them.
0: Yeah. We actually ran HPLC. We analyzed them. They have 164 plus or minus three. So three. (laughs) So that's pretty tight.
1: Extremely tight. (laughs) As
0: far as milligrams. Yeah. Across the packets that we looked at. And, you know, we routinely, we give two packets uh, and ask Phil, I mean, Phil's a bigger dude, uh, two packets, light him up, you know, cause yeah. you, you know, that's, and that's, that puts you right in that sweet spot. Usually that sort of, you know, three to five milligrams per kg range for most people, uh, based on your body size. But yeah, I was up in Bill Eben's lab, who's a notable strength conditioning researcher up in Milwaukee. And the first time we tried doing stuff, we were having, uh, We are brewing. We we brought a bunch of coffee pots into the lab, and we were (laughs) brewing, and we were trying to figure out how many milligrams per milliliter. And you can, with very careful measuring, you can try to approximate certain things. But even then, the problem would be unless you get a specifically high caffeine bean, you know, like you know some of those um, Death Wish coffees, you know, that kind of stuff. some of the bigger guys in that in that uh pilot work we were doing they were slamming nearly an entire pot, and I'm starting to think, i mean literally enough, their stomach was f- full and I'm like okay this is not this is not gonna work <laughs> you know so you, i to get the caffeine dose high enough at least into that sweet spot, yeah, I like via instant coffee uh in fact, we've seen Japanese researchers there's the one gentleman I can't remember his name, but he specifically used instant coffee uh caffeinated and decaffeinated and looked at the um carbohydrate metabolizing ability of middle-aged guys and uh, that were insulin resistant to some extent they were sort of pre-diabetic and the instant coffee especially the caffeinated version uh, it did a nice job of helping them lower their blood sugar into a better range and getting their hemoglobin a1c into a a tighter range so uh, yeah so anyway i'm more of a fan of that and that's not to say i won't use some anhydrous caffeine i still do the uh you know, caffeine snooze kind of thing. Some mornings, yeah, if I get up at four thirty, nap. yep, either a power nap or in the morning. Like I'll, I'll bite a caffeine, I'll my alarm goes off. Bite the caffeine pill in half. Hit snooze. Ten minutes later, when it, when my snooze goes off, and my alarm goes off again. Uh, my eyes are like boink. You know, I'm and I'm ready to get up and go do it. So it, it, I just I guess I would just warn that if you're gonna do the in hydrous caffeine. Uh, it doesn't have some of those other phytochemicals in it uh, that might help with glucose disposal and, and some other things. So uh, I sound like a holistic, naturalistic kind of hippie there maybe, but, you know, good old really strong brewed coffee. Especially, I mean, be careful with the death, death wish, though. Mike sent me some <laughs> of that. I did not sleep well that night. So <laughs> anyway, and that that's sort of a segue then. I'm just going to ask uh, Mike a few things. Uh, about ways to sleep because you know if you're going to hit it hard if you're going to stimulate and ramp up that hard uh, I think you need to sleep deeply and you might need some help you know sleeping as hard as you train so to speak it sounds kind of funny a funny concept but uh, what are some things that you would recommend or that you're aware of that might help with sleep and relaxation at the end of the day?
1: Yeah, the the big one, since we're just talking about caffeine, is I had a client once who came over and said he was taking a new pre-workout type product and had a horrible time sleeping. So I'm like, oh, this is easy. You know, just check to see how much caffeine is in there. And he looks, he goes, no, there's no caffeine. I'm like, what? That doesn't make sense. So I'm like, well, try it again tomorrow. See if you get the same. Tries again tomorrow at like one in the afternoon. Horrible sleep at night. Like, oh, next time you come over, just, you know, bring the product over, we'll look at it. And this is probably like three, four years ago now. So they look at the side, and it, he's correct that it doesn't say the word caffeine on the side, but it says methylxanthines. Oh. Like, oh, <laughs> so the, the fancy chemical word for basically caffeine. <laughs> right. Um, and I know supplement companies, luckily most of them have kind of gotten away from using all the fancy chemical names now. The takeaway is that make sure you read the labels, and if you're not sure, ask someone. Um, the second thing is that some people are fast or slow metabolizers of caffeine. True. There's probably a few things in between. Um, you can get a genetic test that'll tell you, like 23andMe and some of the other ones will. So if you're metabolizing caffeine on the slow side, um, people I work with, they sometimes have to stop by noon or one or two o'clock. Yeah. Um, people who are fast metabolizers, yeah. Maybe you can push it a little bit. And myself, if I want to sleep pretty good, I've been trying to push my caffeine back further. Um, so right now, i probably sleep better if I stop everything by like one or three. Um, lately, I've been trying to stop it. And it seems to help a little bit, even though I'm technically a fast metabolizer of caffeine by the genetic test. Okay, yeah, um, so That's a big thing I found. Um, the other thing, which seems a little bit, counterintuitive that I got from my sleep researcher, Dan Party is during the morning or even during the day, try to get at least 20 minutes of outdoor light. So your wake cycle is controlled primarily by light that comes in through the eyes. Mm-hmm. And the short version is if you get light exposure, that helps regulate the time you should be awake during the day and also helps regulate the time you're supposed to be asleep And I found that if I can do that, even on an overcast day, you still get much more of the the UV light hitting your eyes and just being blind, that I can kind of get away with a few other things and still be okay. Um, So when I was finishing my PhD, my whole sleep schedule was all just MS, caffeine power naps. I had a pillow in the back of my car where I slept and all sorts of horrible stuff I don't recommend. Um, But it took me just doing that every day for almost like six weeks to get sort of back to being re-regulated. Wow. Yeah. So if, if people feel like they're tired mid afternoon and they're kind of awake by the time they go to bed and they've done shift work or they get up and go to bed at all sorts of different times, pretty good chance your sleep schedule and sleep cycles are dysregulated. Yeah. You Um, know, daylight exposure helps a ton.
0: Two things along those lines. One, especially I think if you're a slow caffeine metabolizer. But one of my concerns is that, and one of the potential drawbacks with too much coffee or caffeine all the time is when you're constantly stimulating your adrenal glands, uh, you'll get some cortisol elevations too. And I've had to be careful with this. And I, I knew a biochemist that was like this. I'm thinking of someone in particular who he's like, I can't have a lot of full strength coffee throughout the morning because it's just not worth it for the anxiety and the, my reaction to stress later in the day is really mm-hmm. not good. And so that's one of the the drawbacks. I mean, I th- I find it ironic almost that if you rely too heavily on some of these pre workouts or caffeine before you exercise uh, or all the time, you know, guys that are like dieting and stuff, they're trying to kill their appetite and ha- ramp their metabolism. But the irony would be that you could become higher cortisol and insulin resistant and so in a weird way it's backfiring it's counterproductive you might be doing it for fat loss and the higher cortisol and then the insulin resistance and stuff could actually be leading to an element of like body fatness in your trunk for example Uh, you know again it's just one of those things I've never seen actual research on that, but except to say that, yes, too much coffee and caffeine does increase the cortisol response to stress. And most people know that cortisol is not really your friend when it comes to truncal fat or, uh, you know, muscle preservation either. So the other yeah. thing is, oh, oh, is the, the screen reddeners that people use at night. Uh, if funny. you want yeah, if you want to sleep at night. Uh, I think it was a listener actually turned me on to F. Lux, F.Lux, F-Lux mm-hmm. or Flux. Um, I use it. Uh, my tablet won't run it, unfortunately, but my laptop does. And so I try to use the laptop with the screen, with the more red screen, because it's less disturbing on, like, your pineal gland and the whole wake-sleep cycle, you know. And
1: the, the caffeine part in sleep is that... I'll usually try to my training journal track um, how much caffeine I have. I put it in the little HRV app I use too. And I found that it's a good approximator for other lifestyle factors. So if I have 400 milligrams or 500 milligrams of caffeine that day, something else is probably off. My stress is probably higher. My sleep's probably off. Nutrition's probably not as good. So while you can argue it may or may not be the, the caffeine in and of itself, it's also all the other associated behaviors of, you know, why you needed to use that much also. Yeah, good point. Yep. Uh,
0: what about supplements or uh, pharmaceuticals to help you sleep? Like, what, what would you seek
1: out? Yeah, I've been pretty thoroughly unimpressed with pretty much all of them <laughs> right. that I've seen, to be honest. Yep. Um, there's supposedly a couple of new sleep drugs I mean, I don't know or not that don't screw with your sleep architecture. So like the popular ones like ambient, will in essence kind of chill out your brain a little bit, kind of shut down your monkey mind, so to speak. But it actually messes with your sleep architecture, meaning that the normal, you know, slow and deep and REM cycles that you go through actually get all screwed up. So people feel a little groggy, a little sleepy. They may actually sleep longer. Um, but they're not getting the restorative sleep that they actually need. Um, so I've worked with a few clients who have have used them, and pretty much you know all of them obviously work with your you know physician to titrate you off things of that nature. Um, once they come off, they usually report feeling much better. Um, in terms of supplements, you know people have reported ZMA tends to help. So zinc, magnesium, aspartate. Mm-hmm. I like think there's B six in there. I mean, we'll get wacky dreams from that, which is probably more the B six. It is true that a lot of people, in terms of minerals, are deficient in zinc and magnesium. Yeah, yeah. Magnesium at night can help a little bit, especially if you have restless legs and things of that nature. That's me. Yeah, yeah. The other one that I've used that's not, I would say, necessarily for sleep, but helps more relaxation is L theanine, um, which is commonly found in green tea. Mm -hmm. So I've used that in... Moderately higher doses, it it seemed to help. I haven't, I also track my sleep like a good geek. Um, I haven't noticed a difference in sleep quality, Um, but the thing I did notice a couple years ago was uh, some supplements that are no longer on the market. Uh, One of them in particular would just crush my REM sleep. Like my REM sleep would normally be two and a half to two hours pretty religiously. And if I would take it at any point during the day, it would drop to 45 minutes, like oh, all boy. the time. Um, and there is some interesting research on some antidepressants seem to really mess up REM sleep also. There doesn't seem to be, at least in the reported literature, any sort of downside of that, but it just can be good. Um It's associated with motor learning and things of that nature, too, and that's when you're dreaming.
0: Yeah. I can tell you I've been on a uh, sort of a long journey trying to figure out what might help me sleep. Um, I do take 250 milligrams. It's not a whopping dose of magnesium. If, yeah. A lot of people, if you take more than 350, 400 milligrams, you'll just get diarrhea. You know, Especially um,
1: magnesium citrate and certain yeah. types of magnesium.
0: Yeah, but it helps me, especially if I have uh, some workout stimulants during the day and I do get like restless legs or that kind of stuff. Uh, magnesium is used clinically as a muscle relaxant. And, um, mm-hmm. In fact, my wife was put on magnesium specifically to prevent uh, premature labor because she was oh, at sure. risk for that. Um, so there, there is uh, some science uh, to that. I, I'm going to agree with the L-theanine thing. Um, I've seen some interesting studies up in Canada where they were actually mixing uh, L-theanine with caffeine, believe it or not, because L-theanine yeah. is usually used to sort of reduce stress or help you – promote sleep and um about 100 milligrams of l-theanine and then they would mix it with just like 50 milligrams of caffeine to help people focus and concentrate and then but you know it always came up as how much of this is just the caffeine though you know versus the, Mm -hmm. the theanine itself but it does help me get to sleep uh i haven't tracked closely enough what it does to deep sleep or rem sleep or You know how how well I sleep. I think I need to get a Fitbit or something that can track even just with a, you know, just my movements at night. Like how restless is my sleep? You know, with the accelerometer. which
1: I like.
0: Yeah, Uh, but anyway, L-theanine. I find that 100 milligrams of that does help me uh, get to sleep. Um, Sometimes I'll take melatonin. Um, It's just interesting here in the states. You know, there are certain hormones like melatonin you can just buy. And nobody yeah. nobody cares, and other hormones are like crack cocaine scheduled to the yin yang, you know. But um, and I can I can see maybe why on some level. But I'll take three milligrams of melatonin. Uh, five makes me groggy the next day, so you'd have to be careful with that. There's even been times where I would bite them in half uh, because I'm pretty sensitive to that stuff. But I kind of like the idea that it's a signal to your brain, hey, like you were talking about light sleep cycle. Hey, it's, it's bedtime now, you know? So, uh, now there's usual reports not to do that indefinitely, do it for a couple of weeks and then take some time away from it. I think they're trying to prevent
1: some kind of, um,
0: down regulation. -regulation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Which makes sense, but I've never seen any literature. I mean, the the theory makes sense because a lot of stuff in the body is controlled via negative feedback loops. So when concentrations get too high, we start, you know, cutting back production, um, another tip that I've used with melatonin is I would have people start with the smallest dose you can possibly find, mm-hmm. which is hard because vast majority of all the doses still are three milligrams, yeah. but even a half or even a quarter of that. And if people find that they're waking up in the middle of the night to actually try less melatonin, not more, Interesting. what happens is if you take a dose and your body says, Oh, all this melatonin time to go to bed and then it sees the huge and rapid decay. It says, oh my gosh, levels are dropping. It's time to get up.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um,
1: So by having a smaller dose, you don't have those big, huge, dramatic, um, just as much either. And then people don't like this one, but obviously melatonin is trying to be, and it's getting dark outside. So most people need to take it a little bit sooner, and then obviously go to bed sooner. You know, if you're taking it at 1130 at night to go to bed, well, now you're just pushed your sleep cycle back super late Exactly. of doing that.
0: Yeah, I will take it at like 8 p.m., you know, yeah. I mean, like now, yeah, and during the winter, even sooner. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I, I read a very interesting study that a five milligram dose of melatonin increased growth hormone production.
1: Yeah, it's been Uh, around for a while. Yeah,
0: right. And that's always intrigued me too, because at my age, I'm not getting a lot of GH release from an exercise bout. Uh, That was one of the first studies I was in. We were looking at guys in their 20s versus 30s and 40s. And once you get into your 30s and 40s, you get a pretty blunted little blip of GH from a workout compared to when you were younger. So I'm kind of banking on the fact that I get a fair amount of GH surge maybe Ninety minutes into sleep or something along those lines, um, but having said that, yeah, they were actually giving it to people before a workout. I'm like melatonin before a workout i can't yeah. I can't imagine you know because you're you'd be fatigued, your rate of perceived exertion would be terrible, I would think, but
1: yeah. it, There's studies looking at it as an antioxidant to in, enhance training performance. And you're correct that I think it was soccer players They were given it to before training. Yeah. And I'm like, on one level, I'm like, from a mechanistic standpoint, that's kind of interesting. From a practical standpoint, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. No
0: doubt. No doubt. <laughs> Knowing what it does to me, yeah, even in that three milligram dose. And like I said, sometimes I'll bite those things in half. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I can't imagine. But I kind of like the idea that it's a hormonal type uh, sleep You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say it's more natural. That's a loaded word, but uh, compared to stuff like uh, there, there have been times where I'm like, "Damn it, I need to shut down." I don't. I'm not even going to fuss too much about the quality of my sleep. I need minutes, total minutes, and I'll take I'll I'll bite. uh, Just an antihistamine in half, like a four hour Mm -hmm. antihistamine, and that puts me on my ass. Um, And it's just funny how you got to be careful how sensitive you are. Like I said, I'll bite one and a half. And the problem with those, of course, is they're sold as both a sleep aid and to dry up a runny nose. So you can end up with a dry mouth and that kind of stuff from those antihistamines. And I try not to overuse them, but there have been times. But then, you know, I don't want to fall into this rut, right, where take the yellow caffeine to wake up, take the pink (laughs) antihistamine to get to sleep. It's messed up. I don't want to do that.
1: I tried an antihistamine once for sleep years ago. So my mom's like, "Oh, just take an antihistamine; it'll knock you out." And I had never really taken them before, and I'm looked it up. Oh, it's relatively safe. I'm like, "Yeah, once in a blue moon, whatever." Oh my god, I had the worst reaction to it. I felt cold, clammy. I felt paranoid. I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. Oh yeah, I was just like, "Oh, this is horrible." Yeah, people. I, just, I think people, people differ. A bad reaction to it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Because if you read the label, in some people it causes grogginess and others it will say causes restlessness. I'm like –
1: Oh, I was so restless. You know,
0: (laughs) that's a weird class of drugs. I mean the the idea that you can sell it as both uh, for a runny nose and a sleep aid is just weird in itself to me. Yeah. um, My wife's trick with a lot of her uh, patients because they're on meds and she needs something that doesn't Mm -hmm. doesn't cross-react too much is double-bag chamomile tea. And if you think, oh, wimpy chamomile, that's so that's, that's wimpy. Lowry, how do you even suggest that? But I'm <laughs> telling you, it's, there's, there's like a sweet spot. She'll even triple bag it sometimes. But if you put enough in, in a cup of hot water and you let it steep a good you know five, ten minutes, um, that stuff will really slow you down and help you sleep. Um, and like I said, a, there seems to be less cross-reactivity with some other meds too. So there are times if I'm desperate, like I'll drink a, a double bag, of chamomile, a cup of chamomile, a double bag, and then I'll take uh, a melatonin on top of it. So there are again because I think there's less cross reactivity there. But for me, a lot of this is: do I wake up the next day? Am I still groggy, or do I feel like I accomplished something with my sleep?
1: Tea and things like that of just an evening ritual. I'm mm-hmm. um, trying to like we mentioned minimize light makes a big difference, and I'm a big fan of you know meditation, prayer, you know breathing drills, just Doing things to get your brain to relax. We know that slow breathing increases vagal tone, which you know helps slow heart rate, things of that nature. Right on. Um, and I think even using you know teas and other things that are used as more of the winding down uh, ritual, just like you would sort of wind up before training, um, can make a big difference too.
0: Yeah, I like the breathing stuff. If I wake up in the middle of the night, and I don't know if anybody's. Who's different, but I've I've tried listening to relaxation audio on my tablet, mm-hmm. lots of things, but the best effect that I personally get is just focusing on my breathing, and that's a skill. But it is. if if you can do nothing but slow, focus on slow, long inhales or exhales, and keep, just keep bringing back, you know, your mind wonders. Uh, my mind tends to race sometimes at night, so keep bringing it back to the breath. Like you know, like I've heard meditation. Teachers say stuff like it's like a puppy. The puppy runs away. You don't get upset that you can't keep (laughs) focusing. Just bring it back and sit him down. It'll run away like your thoughts. Bring it back and set it down. And over time, I found that yeah, breathing exercises, focusing on breathing, is one of the best ways that I can keep my mind as blank as possible and get my ass back to sleep.
1: And especially with a lot of the Fitbits now, I've got like I said, I've got a basis. They'll measure heart rate directly. And the very simple sort of biofeedback thing you can do is, you know, if you have your watch on at night, which most people would just look at it and do different breathing techniques, just kind of experiment a little bit and then see what is the lowest you can get your heart rate to. And a lot of times having that direct feedback of watching your heart rate goes down, you know, kind of gives you info on what works better for you and kind of get the positive association and for people who are really... Type A, which I tend to be a lot of the times, having something else to focus on that's pushing you in the right direction uh, really tends to work well for them. If you tell them just even specific breathing drills to do, like you said, they they tend to just wander everywhere else. Or if you give them something else to focus on, right, focus. and that's giving them the positive feedback that they're going in the right direction and help.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, biofeedback kind of thing. As soon as some of these Fitbits and other gadgets can measure blood glucose, I've seen several now that yeah. claim to measure it from sweat. I don't know how yeah. on
1: earth. Interstitial fluid, yeah. But, um,
0: yeah, w- when they get to that level, I'm going to be all about that. And partly for the sleep. Right now, the, my most interest is in the sleep monitoring, you know, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, two others I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention taurine. Uh, Taurine is often added to Red Bull, I think, to kind of balance out the the stimulants in the energy drink. But taken by itself, it's supposed to help support a calm mood. I have some 500 milligram taurines here. I think they help a little. Um, I don't know what the literature says as far as taurine specifically as a relaxant. I know it there. I've seen some data long ago about it reducing um, the tendency for arrhythmias and that kind of stuff and sort of a Calming effect on heart contractility. I don't know. Have you seen anything on taurine and sleep? Yeah,
1: specifically? I haven't seen too much on it to be honest. Um, even in the stimulant stuff, like taurine was a reason Red Bull got banned for a little while in France, if I remember right. Um, one of the studies I did in JISN is looking at energy drinks, especially Monster energy drink, in terms of performance and stuff. And when I'm looking through the literature, there's just not not that much on taurine in terms of energy or possibly the other way um mm-hmm. i may have to ask uh, our buddy sean casey again because i think he did a whole bunch of research on taurine. he may have found some pretty good cool stuff
0: yeah i'm holding a bottle right now from now uh i like the now company i've got some theanine from them some taurine. theanine by the way is is pricey it's 20 bucks just for 90 of these little capsules Taurine was much cheaper it's like five or six bucks uh of course just amino acid but um yeah, uh, I, when I've looked into just general lit reviews on energy drinks, I also had a hard time finding much on taurine by itself. Yeah. You know, and the last one is Valerian Root. I've got this in my left hand, 450 milligrams. I do have a handful of studies that it does help with relaxation or help you get to sleep. Um I don't know, like I've I've not looked at a huge amount of literature, you know, so maybe the studies I have have been cherry picked um, accidentally because I really don't have any vested interest in this. But some of them look like they help. Uh, But these are all examples of things. And again, we're not telling people to go do any of these things. God knows what kind of um, other meds people can be on and that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to toss out that disclaimer. But these are all things that people do use to help get to sleep. And I do like the idea, right, that if we're cranking the pre-workouts to make our workouts hyper-productive, why not take that same approach with sleep, you know, and put yourself down as hard as you put yourself up earlier, especially if you can get some side benefits or or something like that. Uh, I'm with you, Mike. A lot of this, I think, has to do with light-dark cycles, uh, rituals. Um, there's lots of things that go go into the process, and it's, it's not as simple as just getting the, the right chemical in you and then you know, you have wonderful sleep.
1: Yeah, and that's where I'm a, a big fan of starting there with pretty much everyone because you know, any any drug or anything like that always has some cost somewhere. You know, there's there's no physiologic free lunch. You know, if you're yeah using caffeine to get by for less sleep, you may do it for a couple of weeks, couple of months. Hey maybe you get lucky and it's a couple of years, but at some point you're gonna have to repay that that cost in some fashion. Yeah, it's um, good, good advice. In terms of sleep uh, supplements, the last one I'd measure is just Phenobute or Phenobute. It's actually a more considered a Russian drug from years ago, which probably makes it popular. Um, but it's a GABA analog. And I've tried it a couple times, and it's those things that it seemed to work so well it was scary, so I don't use it. But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> seems kind of, I know, but because of my head thinking. If it worked that well, that means that there's a potential for a higher cost somewhere that maybe we just don't know about. Um, but you know, there's a debate about does it have, you know, addictive qualities and that type of thing. Again, probably right. dose dependent. For some people, small doses work, you know, really well. Um, but I I haven't used it for the past couple of years just because I haven't seen any scary data on it, but it just makes me nervous, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I, I, I didn't even think about that one. Yeah, so, and you know what? Again, a final little disclaimer, maybe, but there could be lots of reasons you're sleepless. And so it's worth bouncing this off a doctor. Uh, Still, some physicians are sort of that pill for the ill, and you know, just take your Ambien or take this or let me give you some of that. And, um, you know, check out online. If you you could type in like progressive relaxation audio, and there's a lot of like psychology departments and. Uh, regional hospitals and universities where they have free audio where you find someone with the right voice tone and they take you through you know squeeze your fists relax squeeze your biceps you know relax your traps and they lead you all the way down through your body even your face um, and progressive relaxation is very handy there's uh diaphragmatic breathing where you have your hand on your chest and your belly and you're trying to do slow Hilo. deep breaths there's um oh gosh autogenic training yeah where you're you know, repeated suggestions, you know, your legs are warm and heavy, heavy and warm. You know, they just kind of go through this. And again, you get someone with the right vocal tone and it can be very relaxing, I think. So some of those things are, are known to be effective. I think so.
1: Yeah. And one of my favorites for that is a practitioner named Eli, Eli, E-L-I-B-A-Y. He's got a lot of stuff on relaxation, very nice vocal tone, very, you know, guidance, station—you know, a lot of that stuff. And I found that that works really well for a lot of people who need that one thing to focus on. You know, so just you know, put it on, focus, and they walk you through, which works really well. Yeah,
0: keep your mind from racing. All right, brother, we are out of time. That was
1: good, though. We covered a lot of stuff. I think lots of good info there for everyone.
0: Okay, uh, well, Phil was obviously unable to join us, so we will see everyone next week. See you. uh Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for there are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store and whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced you can take heart that you're not wasting your time The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. uh, Knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org.